2: Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead today on The Exchange stocks unable to keep the rally going in this final trading day of the year. We'll take a look at how we started versus how it's going and get the one thing that could have the bulls charging next year. Speaking of bulls, energy is the only sector finishing the year higher and not just a little bit. It's up by 58 percent. But 2023 could be the year the run ends and we'll tell you why. Plus, Snap proved to be the canary in the advertising coal mine back in October. Everyone from Meta to The New York Times to Paramount now reporting a spending slowdown. So what does next year hold. We'll get to that. But first, today's market action. Let's get to Bob Bassani over at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob?
1: Hello, Kelly, uh, and Happy New Year, everybody. Well, we're ending the year kind of where we've been for a good part of the year, which is on a modest down note with the growth sectors underperforming. So let's look at the major indices. We're down About 200 points in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. That's been an outperformer all throughout the year, relative outperformer. S&P 500, the only real suspense here is whether we end the year down 20% or not. 38.12 would be down 20% for the year. The only reason that's important, that's kind of an extraordinary number. When you get down 20, that just doesn't happen very often. NASDAQ's down more than 30%. In fact, let's take a look at the major indices for 2022. The Dow has been a relative outperformer because it's only down 9% because it's got a lot of those Consumer names, value names that are in it. The S&P, just on the cusp of down 20%. The Russell, and you see the NASDAQ, the big loser, down 33%. Why is the Dow done so well? Because of those value names. You have energy stocks, a huge outperformer. That's not a typo. Chevron up 50 percent. Merck was at a new high just a little while ago. And Travelers and Amgen, Caterpillar rallied big at the end of the year on hopes for a better 2023. Coke, Johnson & Johnson, all the consumer names all outperformed. And that's why the Dow did so much better. Uh, I don't want to gild the lily. It's just been a terrible year. In fact, uh, if we end down 20 percent, this is going to be the fourth worst year for the S&P since World War II. That is not a typo either. So 2008, if you Take a look. That was the worst year we've had in a long time, down 38 percent. 74 was down almost 30. 2002, 23 percent. And 2022, we don't know, but you can see it would be the fourth worst year if we end right where we are uh, right now. So what makes this difficult to figure out is what's going to happen next year in a year where the market is down big. It does tend to happen that the worst sectors tend to outperform in the next year. So if that's the case, you would look at the big losers, which are, as you can see, tech-oriented consumer services, technology, including real estate and consumer discretionary. The problem with making this prediction is that there's confluences of three big events that are occurring that are making 2023 really hard. We've got the continuing effects of COVID. We've got the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Fed higher for longer. And what kind of recession are we gonna have? And when you have this kind of confluence of big events, it makes it really difficult. And this is why the analysts and strategists are kind of clueless right now on what's gonna happen in 2023. But who cares, Kelly, because guess who's here? We have Art Cashin. He is on the floor for the first time this year. We've got 100 retired and current members of New York Stock Exchange. They're going to sing Wait Till the Sunshine Nelly, just like they did years ago, right here, 1.30 Eastern Time. You, me, Kelly, and Art Cashin right here.
2: I can't wait Kelly. for that. Again, 1.30 p.m., people, Eastern Time, coming up in about half an hour. You don't want to miss it. And, Bob, thank you. Now. Bob talked about how this has been one of the worst years for the markets ever. How did we get here? Let's look back at where we were starting in January. We kicked off 2022 with the Fed funds rate near zero, a 10-year yield at 1.6%, basically unmoved for the entire previous year, and yet a very hot economy with half a million jobs added in the month, an inflation rate of 7.5%. Everyone thought transitory was the way to describe inflation, not so much. As we started heading into the year, we got the strong jobs rate in February. Uh, jobs report in February, I should say, by June, things really started to hit a peak, a fever pitch, if you will. The Fed started hiking. The Fed funds rate moved up to 1.6 percent. The 10-year yield was up at 3 percent. The CPI shot up to 9.1 percent. The average gasoline price, we all remember, it rocketed over $5 a gallon. The Russia-Ukraine war, of course, didn't really help. Transitory at this point was becoming a running joke. Now, fast forward to today, and it's almost kind of back to where we started. The Fed funds rate way up at 4.3 percent, no joke. A huge jump from January. The 10-year yield near 4 percent now. The CPI back to 7. It's starting to recede a little bit to lo- the levels that we started the year with as that gasoline price collapsed. The labor market's slowing, but still strong. 263,000 jobs added. And with everything the Fed's done, $12 trillion erased from the equity and crypto markets. So where does this set us up for 2023? Let's ask Mark Avalon. He's president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Mark, welcome to you. The only thing we know about this year is no one saw it coming.
3: Well, that's right, Kelly. And we all had an anticipation of a correction, especially after the robust 2021 that we had. But the severity of the drop and the, the, the rapidity of it, how quickly it happened. If you look at those charts, things have been relatively mild the second half of the year. But the first half was was a devastating drop. We hope that this, this recent trend we had of choppy, directionless, uh, certainly not a robust positive bull market, but at this point, We'll settle for choppy, finding a bottom, settling out, and then hoping mid-2023 offers a little more optimism.
2: You think, and I feel like you're right in this, you think the key is going to be wage growth. So kind of what I hinted before, the job market's still quite strong. Look at jobless claims. They're still basically fine by historical standards. What does that tell you? How does that illustrate the quandary we're in?
3: It's a quandary for Jerome Powell because – Oil prices have leveled off. Commodity prices have come down. The supply chain is working out. You're getting discounts at furniture stores and all those goods that we had driven up in price. But what's not coming down are wages. And he has said as much that they are not going to relent on their anti-inflation push until he gets indications that wages have been suppressed, or at least at a normal run rate. I know that sounds cruel, and it's unfortunate for workers who are finally enjoying wage gains, but wage gains are bad for inflation, bad for corporate profits, and not good for stocks.
2: Yeah, so where does that leave you in the market then? Bob highlighted some of the sectors that everyone wishes their whole portfolio was just marked this year. Uh, Where are you for 2023?
3: well we like financials but i think people need to slow down and ask well there's a lot of different types of financials and when i look at the risk of a recession i don't think it's going to be a deep recession but if there's a risk of recession i don't like banks as much as insurers both benefit from higher rates but insurers don't have revolving lines of credit they don't have consumer loans their debt is long assets in real estate well thought out we hope but well thought out real estate that can navigate the office glut And they're anchored in long term assets, not subject to short term economic cycles. So higher rates benefiting their huge bond portfolios, finally giving them a rate of return and they can avoid the recession shock. That consumers feel, that banks may feel,
2: and we'll talk about this next hour. And they're raising uh, prices, and you know that could again flow through to the bottom line. So you like insurers? Where else would you be? I mean, and are there areas? Obviously, we've seen the correction in uh, high valuation tech stocks. Are there areas in particular you'd stay away from? What would you do with energy, for example?
3: Well, uh, energy is, I think, mostly a rearview mirror. I don't think it's a bad trade. I think it's going to normalize and be more of a market player. Uh, I, it's it's interesting, the, the, the breakout between oil prices and uh, the oil stock prices is at a, a relatively high range. So with oil stocks higher than the commodity, we wouldn't dive into that.
2: Yeah,
3: I think other areas we like, it's interesting. This is one of the few times in my memory that Democrats and Republicans are agreeing on increasing defense budgets. Hmm. The Democrats have hitched their wagon to supporting Ukraine. And Republicans traditionally are supporting aerospace and defense. And that's an area that Given the massive spending we have in this budget for those areas and what we see happening and countries getting really nervous about drone warfare, we think the aerospace and defense sector is poised to benefit.
2: That's a really interesting point. Uh, One the chatbot didn't come up with, that's for sure. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. And again, just to underline it, you said the one factor that will move you out of neutral and into the bullish camp would be if that wage growth slows. That's the most important point.
3: That's what we're watching.
2: All right, Mark. Appreciate your time today. Happy New Year.
3: Happy New Year. Mark
2: Avalon, Potomac Wealth Advisors. For more in the markets, don't miss tonight's CNBC special, Taking Stock, focused on the economy in 2023. They'll talk about wage growth. It all starts at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Now, it's no secret energy is the best sector since January. It'll likely be the only group to end the year in the green. But in this case, a rising tide did not lift all boats. Pippa Stevens here to explain. Pippa.
4: Hello, Kelly. And that is right. Energy is the top sector this year. But we do need to distinguish between so-called new and old energy, because 2022 saw a big divergence between the two. And we've actually seen this before. Going back to 2020, the XLE lost 37%, while the PBW gained a whopping 200%. Then in 2021, oil and gas stocks gained 46%, while clean energy shed 31%. And that brings us to this year. The XLE is up another 56%, while the PBW has lost more than 40%. Oil and gas has now been the top S&P sector for the last two years. And that's notable because no sector has ever led for three years, according to data from ETrade. Now, looking forward, there are bullish and bearish factors for both groups. Starting with old energy, a global economic slowdown could cut oil and petroleum product demand. Companies' free cash flow will also likely be lower than this year, due to sliding commodity prices. With such wide-out performance, investors could also simply take profits. On the flip side, earnings still look pretty good at $80 WTI. The sector also offers earnings visibility and management teams are focused on shareholder returns. For clean energy, bearish forces have been rising rates, a rotation out of growth, production delays, and uncertainty around key policies. Tailwinds include the Inflation Reduction Act, still elevated commodity prices, and record demand. But, Kelly, this was supposed to be a big year for clean energy, and it just wasn't. Yeah, and it started to be when we were
2: talking with uh, the Blake Charging CEO yesterday. He said, look, yes, when gasoline prices spiked in June, everyone wanted an EV. Now they're not so sure. Um, Anything beyond that you think are themes to watch going into 2023?
4: Well, I'm hesitant to say anything super vague after reading your newsletter today, um, but at the risk Usefully of being <laughs> vague, is fine. At the risk of being vague, um, I think one thing that was really illustrated this year is that the energy transition is not going to happen overnight, and that it's not going to be linear. And that you know, even though we saw a big resurgence in coal, even though we saw all these devastating, catastrophic, really extreme weather events, we also saw progress. You know, in the European Union, they're doubling down on their renewable goals, and then here in the U.S., we had the Climate bill, which at this point, it kind of feels like people have forgotten about totally. it, but it provides billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of support for decades to come. And that was really something that was over, that was an overhang for the industry because with flip-flopping, you know, governments, you, you could never make these long-term policies. But now with assurance that there will be support, you know, that could drive the industry. However, as we know from, you know, prior booms, it, just because there's all this support and there's so much growth, it doesn't necessarily translate to stock performance. And a reminder again, again, that the Fed is such an important factor. Even while one part of Washington is fighting so hard
2: to try to move this industry forward, that liquidity tide seems to just tell the fortune of which way it'll go, at least in the very short term. Uh, But like you said, longer term, maybe some goalposts will help out. I thought that was very clear. Uh, Pippa, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Coming up, retail, like the rest of the market, wrapping up its worst year since 08. So which names and brands are best positioned for a bounce back? We'll get Wells Fargo's top picks next. Plus, Art Cashin is back on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, his first appearance since last year. We'll get his thoughts on a turbulent 2022 for stocks and a look ahead at how next year is shaping up. And as we head to break, here's a quick look at the markets. It's red across the board. The Dow's down 2.01, the Nasdaq down eight ten, or 9 tenths of a percent. The 10-year yield around 3.85. It was almost 3.90 this morning. We're back after this.
5: This is The
6: Exchange on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway... The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
0: Welcome back to The
2: Exchange. Investors came into the holiday shopping season worried about the consumer because of inflation. Would they be too squeezed? Well, they proved somewhat resilient, but in the process took on more debt and cut down their savings. What does that tell us about the retail landscape for next year? Joining us now, Ike Borchow, a senior analyst at Wells Fargo Securities. Welcome, Ike. And CNBC.com's retail and consumer reporter Melissa Repko is here as well. We've already talked, Melissa, a lot about this holiday season and the restaurant spend. Ike, have you given us your top picks for 2023 yet?
5: Yeah, we haven't officially uh, come out with those, Kelly. But look, what I would say is that uh, a couple months ago, we became much more uh, compelled by the off-price sector. We kind of saw the tailwinds developing. Trade down uh, was beginning. The middle-income consumers starting to get a little squeezed. uh, Burlington became a top pick. We upgraded raw stores. Uh, We would still kind of echo that. Uh, a lot of what we saw this holiday season was value was really core to the consumer. There's a lot of price promotion. It really plays right into the off-price thesis. So what I would say is Ross and Burlington are still two of the names that we really like uh, right now heading into next year.
2: Why does TJX not make the list?
5: It's a it's a different business. I, I know we all kind of quantify them all in, this, in the same basket as yeah. off-price. So they're all the same, but they're not all the same. TJX is a much more affluent uh, uh, end market demographic. Hmm. If you look at Ross, Ross and Burlington, their margins are much lower. Their productivity is much lower versus pre-COVID. They've struggled with the low end becoming under pressure in 2022. That's all inflecting now. So they're more of an inflection story versus TJ is just kind of steady as she goes, less exciting.
2: That's really interesting. And Melissa, how did we get here? Back. This is a little bit of back to the future feel because companies like TJX were some of the best executors of last decade. Then they kind of went haywire during the pandemic.
8: Yes, we really saw a change in who was the winners and losers in some ways or an intensifying dynamic during the pandemic. I even heard this from a lot of real estate folks as they think about 2023. They're talking about how retailers want to be close to these off-price names. Ike mentioned they're seeing a lot of growth. They also want to be close to grocers. Both of those categories, which are value-oriented and necessity-oriented, have seen a surge. And that's intensifying
2: as people think a little bit more carefully about their spending. That's interesting. Ike, Am I wrong in thinking that we had a big luxury deceleration at the end of the year? Why aren't, you know, normally I think of that category as like pretty resilient no matter what. But how would you describe, I know you cover some of these companies. How do you feel about their momentum going into 2023?
5: Yeah, we haven't seen a lot of pressure there. Honestly, I kind of view it a little bit differently. I'd kind of barbell it a bit. Um, I think the low end, which was under real pressure in 2022, you're going to start to see some of those headwinds dissipate, maybe even become tailwinds. You've got cost of living adjustments. You know, gas prices will be down pretty meaningfully year over year in the first half. So actually low ends improving, high ends resilient middle income, like I said earlier, that's really the consumer where we're starting to see the pressure build. And I think you can see that across companies like Walmart or Kohl's or other companies that have kind of called out trade down activity. That's the thing that we kind of look for. So I'd kind of call that middle uh, as being the soft spot.
2: Would you avoid, I I know you probably don't cover the likes of Walmart, Target and the rest of it, but would that, you think, be an argument for shying away from what others would view as these kind of stalwart consumer chains?
5: Yeah, so I can't comment on those specifically because we don't cover them. But look, I, I would say we have an underweight on Hanes brands. You know, why is one, is one of the issues we see there is they're, they're very exposed within general merchandise, within the mass partners like Target Walmart. I, I think that's a tough place to be right now. I believe those retailers are going to be de-emphasizing the general merchandise and apparel categories into the first half of next year. So that's kind of how I, from a soft lines perspective, that's kind of uh, how I I would look at that.
2: Fair enough. Melissa, as we head into, you know, kind of the January period, there are some people going, okay, well, if it was a bad holiday season, maybe I can pick up a deal. Where are we on inventory levels, on markdowns, on profitability? How do you think the sector is going to come out of this time of year looking?
8: So we haven't heard the latest inventory numbers, so it's hard to say, but we are seeing intense urgency among retailers to clear through their stuff. I was looking at some retailers' websites today, and Anthropology, which is owned by Urban Outfitters, for example, was giving $50 of future spending towards people who are spending $200. Wow. To me, and the interesting catch there was that you had to spend that $50 before the end of the month, hmm. which conveniently is the end of their fourth quarter. Interesting. So again, there's this push to sell through apparel and a lot of those discretionary categories So they start the next year on a cleaner note.
2: Quick final uh, word, because I got to go to Anthro. But uh, when we talk about the shift from goods to services spending, which seems to be happening kind of post-pandemic, is that a big factor here as you look into next year?
5: Yeah, look, I I think for for our space, it's all about demand versus margins. Demand, very uncertain. A lot of these companies are still over-earning on sales, uh, in our opinion, if you kind of look at the run rate of where they should be. Um, so I think that's a problem right now. I think we're going into a macro, you know, slower macro with, with revenue bases that are too high. On the margin front, you know, I, I think you guys mentioned that it. inventory, it's the number one bull case for any retail investor. We end clean. We're going to come into 2020, uh, 2023 with a ton of markdown opportunity because margins were hit so bad last year. So inventory ending holiday is the key data point we have to look for.
2: All right. We'll wait with bated breath. Ike, thanks for your time today. We appreciate Ike Borcho and our Melissa Repko appreciate it. Coming up, Tesla and Meta are battling it out to see which of the mega caps will have the worst 2022. A closer look at the losses next. Plus, is the ad market ready for a spending slowdown next year? We'll look at the players who are most at risk with the CEO of a top ad tech firm. And as we head to break, here's the Dow heat map. I don't see, oh, two greens on the screen today. J.P. Morgan and Chevron eking out gains. Home Depot and Disney among the worst performers. And there's your year-to-date leaders. Chevron up 52%. Merck 44%. Travelers, Amgen, and even Caterpillar round things out. We're back after this. Back to the exchange. We are ending the year much like we started it with markets lower. The Dow's down 329 points. This is definitely session lows right now. The Nasdaq down one and a quarter percent. And Today's going to have such a big impact on those stats, like Bob mentions. Is the S&P going to be down 20% or not this year? Well, we're going to find out based on how we trade in the next couple of hours. In fact, according to Bespoke, this December is tied for the third most 1% declines in the S&P during the month in at least 70 years. There were eight 1% drops this year, 7 in 08, I'm sorry, in 18, 7 in 08, and we've had six this month, marking the fifth time that's happened since the 1970s. So again, it's been a very ugly end to the year. As for today, big tech in the red, Apple. Shares holding up slightly better, down about 1%. Big tech also, I'm sorry, Apple also outperforming this year. You can see it only down 28%. Microsoft, a similar decline. Alphabet down 40%. Amazon has lost half its value. Meta down 65%. And of course, in tech, we have to talk semiconductors in the red again today with Micron, one of the biggest laggards. You can see the SMH down 1.7 percent there. Micron getting a downgrade uh, to hold over at Argus, citing the potential for deep operating losses in coming quarters and the SMH ETF like the rest of the market is poised for its worst year since 2008. It is down 35% since January, just over that 200 level trying to hang on there. Let's get to Seema Modi now for a CNBC News update. Seema? Kelly, good afternoon. Here's what's happening at this hour. So far, there
8: are a few notable takeaways from this morning's release of former President Trump's tax returns. However, there are warnings from Republicans about a precedent being set. Kevin Brady, the ranking Republican on the committee that released the Trump returns, says the move will make American politics even more divisive and disheartening. Russian President Putin and Chinese leader Xi pledging to deepen ties between their two nations, neither directly mentioning Russia's war in Ukraine. Even as Russian missile and drone strikes hit Ukrainian cities today, Putin says he expects Xi will make a state visit to Russia in the spring. And an Internet personality known for his misogynist stances has been arrested on suspicion of rape and human trafficking. Romanian prosecutors say They have evidence that six women had been sexually exploited by Andrew Tate. His brother, Tristan, and two
2: others, a lawyer for the Tate brothers, declined to comment. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Seema, thank you. Coming up, we are moments away from continuing one of the longest-standing traditions at the New York Stock Exchange. The traders are setting up, and Bob Bassani is in the
1: middle of it all. Robert? And it's been a tradition for 160 years. Barbershop quartet singing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And when we come back, he's here. The man himself, Art Cashin, is here. He's going to lead us in this traditional singing of wait till the sun shines, Nelly. When we come back.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. It's the final trading day of the year, which means it's time for a New York Stock Exchange tradition dating back to the early 1900s. Let's get back to Bob Pisani, who is joined by the man, the myth, the legend himself, Mr. Art Cashin. Hi, everybody. Hi, Bob.
1: Hello there, Kelly. Uh, this song was written in 1905, and it immediately became a sentimental favorite on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. It was particularly popular during the this Depression, when its essential message, look to the future, it's going to be better, had particular resonance. And I think it's a message that will have particular resonance for everybody who's gone through a tough year. Here is Art Cashin to lead the floor in the traditional singing of Wait Till the Sun Shines. Nelly. Arthur. Thank
9: you. On three, one, two, three. Wait till the sun shines, Nellie,
1: and the clouds go
9: drifting by. We will be happy, Nellie,
1: I am New happy happy New, New, Year. New Year. Happy New Year Peter. Bobby. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. Woo! Happy New Year. Happy New Year, honey. Happy New Year. How are you? Good to see you. Happy do, you do it? David. Happy New Year. Do it. Nicholas. Happy New Year. Great to see you, as always. Arthur, come on over here. Come on up here, front, center here. First off, it's so great to see you back down here. You, we didn't show it, but the floor erupted when Arthur came on the floor. You haven't been down here uh, in a year. Your thoughts on coming back on the floor?
9: I didn't realize I owed that many people money.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're collecting today.
9: Yes. Yeah, no, um, it, it's great to be here. It's one of the most wonderful places in the entire world. I've spent uh, 60 some odd years here. Uh, my children tell me I'm almost getting it down pat now, but uh, uh, we're working. But uh, Uh, To everybody out there, all the viewers, have a very happy New Year. Uh, Maybe a little bumpy at first, but we're going to make it through, and you'll be happy at the end when we sing Nelly again.
1: And your Christmas poem, of course, went out, was a big hit, and your New Year's poem just came out today, and also uh, a big hit. It's been a tough year, a a difficult year to get your head around. Uh, When you look back on the year, what sticks out uh, to you most, and and, and what is most important to you?
9: Uh, I think it's the Fed. I mean, we've had... Everything from COVID pro- problems in China to uh, the invasion of Ukraine, they've all been very serious. But for now, for the investors, it is what the Fed is doing. And uh, not to be too boring on a celebratory moment, but Keep your eye on the money supply, folks. It just fell off a cliff.
1: Mm. Kelly's got some questions too as well. Kelly?
2: Yeah, I think you just answered them. Art, it's great to see you again. I hope you can hear me all right. And it's great to see everybody else down there. Uh, You said watch the money supply, Art, but what what does your instinct tell you about the year we're gonna have after the kind of year we just had?
9: Well, I I would love to tell you that it's gonna be like the Wizard of Oz and everything will be in glorious color in in a moment or two. I think we may have a bumpy first quarter and depending on the Fed, it may last a little longer than that. But I think uh, I've seen this movie before, and there's a happy ending. So I hope the viewers wait and enjoy it.
1: I think the important thing is you have lived through some of the worst years ever at the New York Stock Exchange. This will go down as the fourth worst year since 1945. You will live through uh, 72, 3, and 4, a down year then. Uh, 2002 was another big, more than 20% down year. 2008, Also, all three of those had very special big events around them. We've had big events this year, COVID, Russian invasion, and, of course, the Fed higher for longer. Is this one of these rare occasions where you get something that's going to continue into next year? I'm asking for a prognostication. Is 2023 going to be a down year or up year? It's extraordinarily unusual to have two down years. Could this be one of them? Uh, Well,
9: there's a very narrow universe to look through it. But as I said before, I think it may be a little rough in the first quarter or first half. Uh, But I think we're going to come out of it, and I think uh, both the economy and the country will be better for it. And I hope you all enjoy it. God bless you all.
1: One of the things, uh, the, I have a book out, and you're the only person who has an entire chapter devoted to just him alone, and what you have taught me over the 25 years you and I have been together about not just the stock market, but more importantly, about the art of storytelling and how to tell a story, how to take arcane information about the stock market and actually weave it into a story that's interesting for people, this natural storytelling gift that you have, which has had such an impact on me and, and, and my life that I devoted a whole chapter of my book just to you and your thoughts uh, alone. Where did you acquire that? And what, what, what advice do you give future people who want to explain the world to people? Well, it, it, it goes back thousands of years.
9: People have been talking in parables and other ways to convey knowledge and stories. And it, it's, it's always been important to me. Um, you, you know, one of, one of the classics was We, around the Cuban Missile Crisis, I thought there were rumors around that the Russians had pressed the button. I was trying to buy a put or something to sell. I went down to the uh, local pub, which was my university, and uh, Professor Jack was there, and I said, Jack, I heard the missiles were flying, and I tried to buy some put, and he said, kids, sit down, buy me a drink, and listen carefully. When you hear the missiles are flying, you buy them, you don't sell them. And I said, you buy them, you don't sell them? He said, of course, because if you're wrong, the trade will never clear. We'll all be dead.
1: And that's a lesson for next time the end of the world happens. Art Cashin, uh, so many people owe so much to you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Many of these are retired members of the Buttonwood Club from the New York Stock Exchange. They've been here. 50, 60 years ago, along with Arthur, and they came down here to pay tribute to Arthur and, of course, to continue that, continue that wonderful tradition. Wait till the sun shines. No, thank you for your leadership and your friendship from me personally, Arthur. And we'll be here next year with our cash and the Buttonwood Club and everyone from the NYSE. Kelly, thank you. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everybody. And to you
2: guys as well. One of a kind, Art, in a wonderful interview by Bob beside It's great to see everybody back on the floor down there. Our best to you all. Still ahead here on The Exchange. It's been about three months since Hurricane Ian wreaked havoc across western Florida, but its effects will extend far past just the cleanup. The eye-popping impact a single storm will have on insurance next year. Details ahead on The Exchange.
5: Ring in the new year
9: by joining CNBC Pro. Invest like a pro in 2023 with a special year-end offer. Go to CNBC.com slash pro new year or scan this code now.
2: 2023 will likely mean sticker shock for American businesses and homeowners paying property insurance. Florida especially getting hit by high premiums and hard to get coverage. Contessa Brewer joins us now. Contessa.
7: Hi there, Kelly. You know, Floridians already pay nearly three times the national average, the most in the nation, according to the Insurance Information Institute and on track for 33% annual increases. The cost for insurance is so high in Florida, so hard to get, that real estate development deals are just imploding, according to Lockton, a global brokerage. Costs are skyrocketing for insurers, too. Inflation, of course, partly to blame, but lawsuits and fraud in Florida, and then on top of it, the monster storms like Hurricane Ian. All these factors that force more than a dozen insurers to fold or flee the state, another two dozen on the financial watch list. The legislature in Florida has just passed a new law to tackle some of those systemic problems. No more one-way attorney fees where the insurer bears the costs of the plaintiff's lawsuit. APCIA, which represents insurers, says that lines the pockets of billboard lawyers at the expense of consumers pointing out that plaintiff's attorneys get nearly three-quarters of what insurers shelled out. This new law bans the assignment of benefits, where a homeowner signs over the right to make a claim to, for instance, a roofing contractor, who then in turn can sue the insurer even without the homeowner's consent. That led to both fraudulent claims and more lawsuits. And the legislature created a kind of a reinsurance fund of a billion dollars or so. It requires customers to get private flood insurance if they can find it and only pay 20 percent more than what citizens charges. That's the state backed insurer of last resort, Kelly. They're really trying to move people off of citizens. The CEO of Slide Insurance told me he thinks that the reforms largely will fix Florida's insurance market. But people are going to have to wait. Well,
2: and Contessa, I already hear people complaining. They'll say, like, my auto premiums are going way up, obviously, in in some cases, homeowners as well. What kind of sticker shock, even as investors are saying, hey, insurance stocks look pretty good right here. What about the consumer? Are they going to be able to handle these price hikes?
7: You know, in every state insurance is a regulated uh, industry. So the regulators go in and they look at what the insurers are paying out for claims and what they're taking in for premiums. And part of the reason why premiums are going up is because the price of everything has gone up. If you look at the co- if you get into a car crash, what it costs an insurer to repair or replace your car has gone way way up. And so that's part of the reason you're seeing sticker shock. But when you're looking at the stock uh, say of all state and progressive. Those stocks have had an extraordinary year, even though the auto insurers themselves have been strapped for cash. Hmm. Why? Investors now see state regulators coming to the table approving hikes in rates, and they think Allstate and Progressive will be able to charge enough now to improve their margins. Yeah,
2: it's such a weird business where the worse they do, the more excited investors get (laughs) for the future. Uh, Contessa, thank you. We appreciate it. Contessa Brewer. Still ahead, it wasn't just consumers who reduced spending this year. Advertisers cut back, too, kicking off concerns across the media landscape. What will happen come 2023? We'll dive in next. And as we head to break, check out the sector heat map for 2022. Energy in the green up 58 percent, the only sector higher, while communication services and discretionary in the rear, 30 to 40 percent declines. Now, here's the S&P, by the way, everybody. 38-12, if we close below that, that's a 20 percent drop on the year. We're three points below that level right now. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. From social to streaming to traditional, across the board, the ad spending slowdown hit media of all kinds this year. Twitter, Meta, and Snap all reporting a huge pullback in advertising in the second half. Netflix and Disney Plus launching ad-supported tiers shortly thereafter to try to target customers, cutting back on their spending as well. What does the competition all mean for 2023? Let's ask Mark Douglas, the founder and CEO of ad tech firm Mountain, and CNBC's very own Julia Borston Welcome to both of you. Mark, I'll start with you. I haven't gotten to check in with you since we've had these juicy predictions about Netflix possibly being merged with another company or taken over, and the drama with Warner Brothers Discovery – what do you what are your big bold predictions
10: well i think the whole lab industry is obviously in a lot of turmoil the biggest thing that's occurring is with all this new content coming into the market from netflix from disney plus um that's going to cause a price war and so you're going to start to see prices for ad inventory come down they're already coming down in q1 and that's going to last for a bit of time and so 2023 is going to start out a bit rocky but i also think you're going to start to see the way to combat a price war if there's more supply than demand you got to get more demand into the market and that's going to come from direct response advertisers which ironically in a lot of cases are, are spending less with Meta, less with Google. And so there's a lot of change in this market. That's the biggest prediction. And especially for the television market, um, they're going to see a lot of turmoil in the first half of the year.
2: Julia, is it all just a consequence of, you know, companies cutting back on their budgets or does it reflect a change in power of where the eyeballs are?
11: I would say there's definitely a notable change in power. There's so many different factors at play right now and so many transformations over the past year. One fact that I would point out that I think is really important to note is the fact that this is the first time that Google and Meta have not had over 50 percent of digital ad market share since 2014. This is according to Insider Intelligence. So we've talked a lot about the digital duopoly in recent years. But the reality is, is that digital duopoly is losing ground to the likes of Amazon, to the likes of Amazon. Apple. And I think it's really going to be interesting to see what happens in this Apple versus Meta battle um, and because we really have seen Meta and other of these players really curtailed in their ability to target ads. Luckily for them, they're going to be coming up against some better comparisons when it comes to dealing with those issues. But I think look for what, you know, what we call the rise of the rest, the other players sure. um, as Meta and Google face more more challengers. Got to get Steve Case uh, to, front that, <laughs> to front that. Mark, so
2: Julia mentions Amazon. How big of a a player are they becoming, Uh, Apple as well, when we start looking further into 2023?
10: Well, i think in the case of amazon they're essentially selling their search results which used to be free You used to go to amazon search for the products you are interested in and you know you got the results and then amazon figured out they could start monetizing those search results um for when you search for products and so their ad business is very unique in that they just took an asset they had and they started ta- essentially taxing their sellers on amazon in order to 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 get the best search results so that's very unique i think in the case of apple you know one thing that's really interesting actually pivoting a little from apple to meta is there's a number of people that think the metaverse is as much a play for facebook or meta to get off of apple's platform in other words if you create something beyond the iphone then you're not subjected to you know apple's whims in terms of Their technology and what you're allowed to do, and things like that. So, you know, Facebook, Meta, I should say is playing a very long game in terms of the metaverse to essentially get beyond apple in the future i think in terms of apple's business there's rumors they're going to enter the tv market that's more supply it's going to put more downward pressure on prices but honestly i don't see them having the 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 heart the heart for it they just have (laughs) never really truly (laughs) been an advertiser
2: well or or they'll develop the heart for it too late i guess and then and then come in with the big bucks ready to to spend it around julie what would you add to that
11: Yeah, I think he's absolutely right. I've heard that as well. Look, nobody wants to be playing a game with rules that another platform has created. And that's exactly what happens when Meta is operating Instagram and Facebook on Apple's devices. So I think that's that's key. 10 years down the line, they want to make sure that they're serving you ads in the Metaverse on their devices and playing by their own rules there. So I think that's a key thing to know. But I would also just say that, you know, this is the year that we've seen at the end of the year, the launch of more ad-supported streaming services with Netflix, with Disney Plus. Next year, we're going to see the combination of the uh, the Discovery Warner Media um, assets into a single streaming app. I think it's going to be a new phase for the streaming wars and a lot more competition. And I think the question is whether maybe we'll see more free ad-supported services coming. Uh, Mark, I don't know about you, but I hear a lot about these fast channels, free ad-supported channels, and whether yeah. maybe down the line Netflix and Disney will launch their own fast channels. And Mark, as yeah. you
2: respond to that, let me just throw this in here as well, because I know one of the things you think we're not focusing enough on is the regulatory risk coming from the administration so even as i keep asking well what about netflix or what about this merger or that merger is there a sense that no merger gets done and that that's what's creating this state of suspension where ad prices keep falling because there's just so many options out there and consolidation is tough
10: yeah I mean in terms of the media companies I actually think you're going to see a lot of consolidation. Um, essentially some of the be- because I keep referencing there's a price war coming if you with all this new supply coming in the market it's going to trigger the prices for ads to go down and I just think there's a lot of TV networks a lot of content suppliers that that are going to struggle to survive that as standalone companies so I think you're potentially looking at a lot of media mergers and acquisitions over the course of next year what's really interesting is that you know google amazon um meta these companies can't get an acquisition past the ftc i mean yeah. amazon can't acquire a vacuum cleaner company right now without the <laughs> ftc trying to block the deal it's, it's so it's it's rough out there for those players
2: just because everyone knows roomba I maybe mean, they got to go something <laughs> more ob- obscure uh we'll yeah. leave it there guys thank you both today mark douglas and our julia borston before we head to break, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank our executive producer, Maria Bowden, on her final day here at the helm of both the exchange and power Lunch. I'm trying not to tear up while I say this. Maria was integral. There she is back in the control room. She was integral in the formation and launch of this show nearly four years ago. Now she's moving on up to start and end her day a little earlier here at CNBC. Her energy, creativity, her enthusiasm for obscure market stats and ability to work with me are unparalleled. So, Maria, we're so happy for you We're so happy for you. Best wishes. Thank you for everything. (laughs) We're also thrilled to welcome in one of the greats here, Matt Quayle. We are super lucky to be having him take over, and we really look forward to that. (laughs) And we should toast. Coming up, champagne sales are expected to post another record year in 2022, topping last year's $6 billion. But the future isn't looking so sparkling thanks to climate change. That's next. Welcome back, I want to get to one more thing before we go, and just in time for New Year's Eve Eve, it's champagne. But bubbly, they say, is at serious risk due to climate change. Diana Olick has the story, Diana?
0: Well, Kelly, it's not just for New Year's Eve anymore. Champagne sales have been soaring all after year after year, a record six billion dollars in twenty twenty one. Exports to the U.S. last year jumped 64 percent from the year before, and this year may be even stronger. But a new report shows champagne is increasingly at risk due to climate change. France's champagne wine region's exposure to physical risk caused by drought will nearly triple by the 2050s, that according to S&P Global Sustainable One. It will then more than double again by the 2090s. Now, we already saw record drought and heat last summer cause the champagne grape harvest to move up a month to august the same thing happened last year but it was thought to be an anomaly the grapes have been maturing faster due to heat and drought while drought is the primary challenge Champagne's risk of extreme heat and fire will double from now to the 2050s according to the report last summer france's famous wine regions saw so-called unprecedented wildfires now lvmh is the name with the greatest exposure with brands like moet and chandon krug And my personal favorite, Veuve Clicquot, no surprise, champagne prices are rising along with the bubbles. So drink up, Kelly. Happy (laughs) New Year. So is it just a, a timing issue or, you know,
2: in a way you wonder, could the champagne producing region end up migrating or something like that?
0: Well, it can't migrate far because champagne is called champagne because it comes from the Champagne region of France. Now, you can get sparkling wine anywhere, really. In fact, they make it in England. I just learned that yesterday. And of course, there's Prosecco in Italy and there's sparkling wines in California. But champagne has to come from champagne. So they're really stuck with whatever the climate is. And it's not just the climate, but again, that wildfire risk. And we saw so much of that in California over the last couple of years as well.
2: It's a good point that it's become much more common. You know, I haven't thinking about it, you know, at home, there's there's Prosecco, there's sparkling wine. It's kind of it's almost becoming a commodity. Now, I know people want champagne itself for the the high quality. You're making a statement and all the rest of it. But could those other categories come to supplant champagne and, and eat into its market share, especially with these existential
6: risks?
0: Well, of course it could. But again, you go back to all the snobs out there who say it has to come from champagne. That is the true champagne. Can you, of course, have sparkling wines? Sure, you can. It just, you know, it goes to the market of are you going to buy that ultra luxury that comes from the the original place where it was created, or do you buy, I don't know, it's not a knockoff to say, but you can certainly get it somewhere else. No, I
2: learned a lot about that region watching the Tour de France this summer, by the way, kind of a bonus (laughs) highlight. Uh, Diana, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Diana Olick. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. Power Lunch begins right now.